I'm Dave Lawler, the world editor at Axios. In this season of How It Happened, my colleagues and I have been documenting the war in Ukraine in real time. At the time of this taping, we're just over a month out from the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. Many of us following this closely have started to wonder, is there any possible end in sight? This episode will focus on what a deal to end this war might look like, and what happens if Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky don't resolve this conflict through diplomacy. You'll hear from Zelensky's chief of staff, a member of parliament from his party, two experienced Kremlin watchers who've been speaking with people in Putin's orbit for years, and a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine with decades of diplomatic experience in the region. These conversations will illuminate the motivations of Putin and Zelensky, take us inside the complex decisions they're both facing, and consider what the endgame could be for each of these leaders and this conflict. This is how it happened, Putin's invasion. Part three, how it could end. In recent days, there's been a stark difference in how Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Russian President Vladimir Putin are speaking about this conflict. President Volodymyr Zelensky has been calling for a ceasefire, demanding security guarantees in any peace agreement to ensure Russia will never invade again, and insisting that peace is the best option for Russians as well. Russian President Vladimir Putin has been far less visible as his invasion plan is unraveled. During a televised video conference on Friday, Putin complained that the West was trying to, quote-unquote, cancel Russia. That's a pretty flippant response to the unprecedented sanctions and condemnation Russia is facing for invading its neighbor. Putin also made a rare public appearance on March 18th, to address a big patriotic rally. President of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. In the middle of a speech intended to celebrate a victory that was not actually occurring and display far wider national support than likely exists, the video feed suddenly cut away and began playing music from earlier in the rally. It's almost a perfect analogy. The Kremlin said it was just a glitch, but it felt like a manifestation of how the conflict and the narrative around it have spiraled out of Putin's control. Every time we hear Putin and Zelensky speak, we get a sense of just how far apart these two leaders are. But there's no clear path to peace without an agreement between them. And while Putin alone started this war, both leaders will have to consider what they'd give up to make it stop. I'm sorry, if you wanted to have an optimist on the podcast, you'd turn to the wrong person. That's Sasha Gabuev. I'm a senior fellow with the Carnegie Endowment, based in Moscow up until recently, and now in Istanbul, have been working in foreign affairs, including as a reporter for Kommersant, the leading independent newspaper in Russia since 2007. 
no one knows exactly what Putin is thinking. But Kabuo spent years reporting on the Kremlin and traveled with officials as a member of the press corps. He drew on his reporting and analysis on a recent Zoom call. Multiple misconceptions about Ukraine led to this terrible and disastrous war. There was this long-standing obsession with Ukraine that needs to be part of Russian sphere of influence, Ukrainians and Russians being one people. Putin only trusts a very close circle of advisors. And Sasha Gabuev wasn't convinced any of them had any real insight into Ukraine. The quality of people working on Ukrainian track, most of the time operatives, intelligence officers, was not necessarily superb because everybody believes that, oh, it's like, why would we on earth need to understand this country because it's just so close and we are so similar. Ultimately, he is a prisoner to this misconception that Russians and Ukrainians are one people and that Ukrainians are either will be greeting the Russian liberators with flowers or at least they will be tolerant to Russian occupations. Vladimir Putin believed that, okay, this guy will be chased out when the first explosions are in Kiev and like the civilian leadership will be decapitated and then the army will surrender and it will be very easy to deal with. It's hard to know for sure what Putin envisioned or how he's reacting to the setbacks his military has faced. We reached out to the Russian embassy in D.C., hoping to interview a Russian official for this episode, but didn't hear back. It's indeed difficult to get into Putin's head, also because of self-isolation of the last two years. We know that his social circle has shrunk very considerably during COVID because of his uh, obsession with his health and security. So before he had a pretty big uh, social circle, he talked to many foreigners, Western CEOs, heads of state, ministers, he talked to think tankers. Now the level of access is much narrower. The decision-making in the Kremlin is increasingly a black box, which is very difficult to penetrate for outsiders. I spoke with another close observer of Putin, Sergei Radchenko. I'm the Wilson Ishmid Distinguished Professor at the School of Advanced International Studies, John Hopkins University, and my expertise is Russian foreign and security policies. Radchenko pointed out that Putin also underestimated the response that would come from the West. What really made a difference for Putin is he thought that he could get away with this. He understood that Ukraine was not part of NATO. Uh, he did not expect much of a Western response. Sanctions, yes, but he had sanctions before, after the 2014 annexation of Crimea and the war in eastern Ukraine. He thought he could weather those sanctions, and he certainly underestimated Ukraine's response. How could Putin have miscalculated so badly? And how did people who've been watching and interacting with him for years not see this coming? Ratchenko met with officials and experts in Russia shortly before the invasion. And even to them, it just seemed impossible that this shrewd political operator would do this. The picture that I got in Moscow was a picture of an echo chamber. This is a picture of experts talking to one another and saying, surely this is insane, surely he's not going to do that. And the other one saying, oh yeah, you know, obviously this must be some kind of a game because no rational person would actually do something stupid like this. We did not actually align ourselves to Putin's calculations. His world that he lives in is different from ours, so his calculations were accordingly different. 
Putin seems to have a deep ideological motivation to push on with this war, and many Russians also support his cause. Some of them believe the state media narrative that Ukraine committed grave crimes against Russian speakers and posed a threat to Russia itself. But even as Putin influences and is influenced by this complicated information landscape, Radchenko doesn't think he's entirely insulated from what's actually happening on the battlefield. Russian propaganda is telling especially the people of Russia one particular story, but I think Putin has to understand this war is not going in the right direction for him. So his reality, such as it was, came into conflict with the real reality on the ground, and the real reality basically trumped the imaginary reality of Putin's mind. You would think that at this point he is, he's probably looking for a way out of the war, but it's not clear that he is. The Kremlin's full list of demands for a diplomatic solution seem almost designed to be impossible for Ukraine to accept. They are neutrality, the idea that Ukraine won't formally ally with the West and against Russia. Then there's these two confounding words that keep coming up, demilitarization and denazification. Both are ill-defined, and the latter is particularly confounding because Zelensky is Jewish. But there are two clear-cut demands that the Kremlin has not budged on. That Ukraine recognize Russian sovereignty in Crimea and recognize the independence of the so-called republics in eastern Ukraine. Here's Gabuev again. What's unacceptable to the Ukrainian government is recognition of Russian sovereignty over Crimea and recognition of Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states. As Ukrainian forces hold off the Russians, it's becoming even less likely that they would accept such a deal. They're ready to keep fighting for military victory. Here, President Zelensky is also prisoner to Ukraine's own military success and to Ukraine's overwhelming win in global information war, where bulk of the international community, particularly the West, stands by Ukraine and shares Ukraine's narrative. It looks like the Ukrainian society is convinced that just one more month of endurance and the aggressor will be chased out of the country. Those hoping Putin might soon admit defeat are likely to be disappointed. I think that he started such a terrible and reckless war and cannot settle for smaller prices. Some observers think the only way Putin would ever actually sit down with Zelensky would be in a show of victory. Yes, Putin can be in the same room with Zelensky, but probably signing a treaty that will be Ukrainian defeat. And it's not something Ukrainian society can swallow or President Zelensky can swallow. Radchenko also thinks Putin is unready to back down. What Putin, I think, is hoping for is that he will continue to apply military force and there will be fatigue in the West with Ukraine and they'll just say, okay, you know, forget about Ukraine and he'll be able to basically force Zelensky to sign away on those points. Gabuev again. The problem for Russia is that this war is unwinnable medium to long term because you cannot occupy the country of Ukrainian size and the population size of Ukraine forever against the will of Ukrainian people. What we see in the last 10 days or so is shift in the tactics and more reliance on firepower, long-range artillery, and bombardment of cities. Mariupol is now the embodiment of it. And if victory cannot be achieved through either surgical strikes or successful land operation, then you just ground 
the cities district by district. And that's unfortunately very hard to push back if you are Ukraine. We'll be back in a moment. After the break, Ukraine's endgame. We'll hear from two of Volodymyr Zelensky's close allies on how he's handling the pressures of war and what he's willing to do to end it. Welcome back. I can tell you that before the invasion, Zelensky was the complete opposite of Putin. I spoke with a member of parliament from Zelensky's party, Marian Zablotsky, who was actually in a car on his way from Western Ukraine back to the capital, Kyiv. For extraordinary parliamentary session. The vote was to eliminate import taxes to make it easier for Ukrainians to get supplies from EU countries. He's very decisive. He has radical solutions in radical times. So he proposes and then we execute. That's why I'm currently going to Kyiv to adopt some of his proposals that he has made. Zelensky may be Putin's opposite in many ways, and certainly they are foes in this war. But if Putin is difficult to persuade and ideologically motivated, apparently so is Zelensky. Zelensky is a very ideological person and he honestly believes everything that he says. I've been on a number of meetings with him discussing different legislation and I always knew that the best thing to convince him is just to tell him that this is the right thing to do and why. So he's a very morally conscious person. Zelensky is a relatively young leader, a political outsider, a comedian turned president. Zablotsky described him as someone who was open to hearing proposals and ideas. A listener. He regularly, randomly gathered members of parliament just for the sake of meeting, for listening, to hear additional proposals, and uh, then to take ideas and to implement those proposals. So very big openness is definitely about him. My colleague Barack Ravid recently interviewed Zelensky's right-hand man, his chief of staff, Andrei Yermak. Barack told me that Yermak, in the American context, would be like Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan rolled into one. Yermak spoke with an interpreter, and he took issue with the idea, raised on the call, that Zelensky might be under pressure from other world leaders to make a deal. Here's the interpreter speaking over Yermak. Pressuring Zelensky or telling him to do something is not possible. There is no such person in the world who can do it. Such person hasn't been born yet. Even if someone is contemplating this kind of uh, pressure, it it isn't possible. Yermak shed light on what Zelensky's day-to-day is like right now. He sleeps around four to five hours. Then he has up to 10 different calls uh, with international leaders. There's several meetings with the government. He went on and on. Military and intelligence meetings, addresses to his nation to keep up morale, speeches to foreign parliaments, visits to Ukrainians laying wounded in hospitals. 20 hours on the daily basis the president is working, but he's uh, such a man that in such situations he stays very concentrated. He stays very energetic. He energizes also other people who are around him. Yermak spelled out Ukraine's conditions for any peace deal including binding security guarantees to be enforced by international partners. The most important for Ukraine are three items. Stopping the war, withdrawal all Russian troops, and creating the new security facility or construct for Ukraine. Because those who say that there is some kind of security in the world right now 
they will be lying because after this war, there is no such security system. So it has to be built from scratch with all the players together. Yermak made it clear that Zelensky was unwilling to give up any territory, despite Putin's red lines on that issue. There are compromises that Ukraine is never prepared to make. And these are compromises related to our independence, to our territorial integrity and our sovereignty. Zablotsky pointed out that legally, giving away territory isn't actually Zelensky's decision to make. Our constitution clearly states that the only way that the borders of our country can change is on a referendum. So if more than 50% of Ukrainians decide to give in to Putin's demands, that is the only way that it can technically be done. Overall, Yermak struck a more optimistic tone about the negotiations. There is a very careful optimism regarding this. First of all, regarding the fact that it's ongoing. And secondly, that there are things that we feel we can agree about. He said a sit-down between presidents seemed possible, maybe even not so far off. Certain progress can be reported because we think that the moment when the presidents can meet is coming close. Zablotsky, however, argued that Russia's demands aren't based in reality, and that from what he's seen, most Ukrainians are focused on winning this war on the battlefield. Over 90% of Ukrainians believe in military victory. If you're in, in actual war, you understand more or less the logic of the war. So here, when people are in the cities and those who have taken up arms, their families most often actually live in the city that they are defending. So a close friend of mine, his young wife, uh, his four-month-year-old kid, are just one mile away from his position. So there is absolutely no way that he, he will leave that position. On the other hand, he is being attacked by Russian soldiers whose mother's families are hundreds of miles away, and their average salary is $500 per month. When he just hears bullets whistling around him, what's his motivation to push forward? There's almost none. But at the same time, the idea of this war stretching on much longer was unfathomable to him. I can tell you that the last four weeks do seem to me like four years. When something catastrophic like this happens, time does seem to slow down like 50 times. For us, this month has already been extremely long. And imagining additional months of this is very difficult, but I can tell you that in any case, we have no choice. We cannot give in to not having our freedom. Then there's the prospect that this war could end without Putin in charge, or Zelensky. Here's John Herbst, a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine who's met with Zelensky multiple times and is currently the director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. If Zelensky were in some fashion taken out, you have a line of succession. Obviously, the loss of his leadership would be a major blow, but I don't think it would be a decisive blow. As for Putin, there is a long history in Russia of unsuccessful wars leading to serious changes in government. It happened with the Crimean War in the 1850s, the Russo-Japanese War in the early 1900s, World War I. Putin can certainly be vulnerable, Does that mean he'd be replaced? I don't know. But I would not be astonished if he were. As I interviewed all of these experts, I wanted to know, did they see any glimmer of hope for a diplomatic solution? Here's Radchenko again from Johns Hopkins. 
the agendas and the goals of the two respective parties are so far apart, it's very difficult to find where they could intersect, although both sides have claimed that they have made significant progress towards some sort of a solution. Members of Zelensky's inner circle, including Yermak, have met several times with much lower-level Russian officials. Both sides have called the talks constructive, but questioned the other's seriousness. Herbst points out that Putin's choice of representatives doesn't signal that he's taking diplomacy seriously. The Russian legislature is by and large a rubber stamp body. You don't even have a senior professional diplomat in charge. And by the way, senior professional diplomats are not part of Putin's inner circle, but they're at least very familiar with the policy. So you have folks of little standing conducting these talks on the Russian side. Herbst is sure that the Ukrainian president knew that too, even as he insists he wants to proceed with diplomacy. Zelensky has said multiple times he would like to meet with Putin to, and to reach a diplomatic agreement. So I think diplomacy is an important part of his calculation, but he's, he's proved to be a pretty shrewd observer of the international scene and of his adversary. He knows that Putin's not serious right now about diplomacy. Putin is trying to force Ukraine to accept unacceptable terms for peace. Back to Gabuev from Carnegie, who you might recall warned us at the beginning of this episode that he was no optimist. I don't see the diplomatic solution in the cards for now or for the foreseeable future. So it's likely that the ugliest pages of this war are in front of us, not behind us, and that this conflict will be much more bloody and lengthy that anybody has anticipated on the outside. Vladimir Putin has not achieved the swift, total victory he envisioned for this war. In fact, it's increasingly clear to analysts, if not to Putin himself, that this is not a war he can ever win a clear, lasting victory in. But it's also not a war that his rhetoric suggests he's ready to end, at least not on terms Vladimir Zelensky could accept. For Zelensky, Preserving Ukraine's sovereignty is his ultimate aim. But before the war, he was trying to steer Ukraine west, toward NATO and the EU. He might have to give that up. Even more painfully, he might have to find a way to make concessions on Ukraine's borders to make a deal. Putin's best case scenario, since Zelensky's government refuses to capitulate on territory or sovereignty, may be that he eventually tires out Ukrainian forces and the West in a war that could stretch on for months or maybe years. But in the course of that conflict, as crushing sanctions and increasing military casualties hit hard at home, he could face an unprecedented challenge to his hold on the presidency. To bring these two leaders together, agreeing to a deal to end this war, something will have to fundamentally change in Moscow, in Kyiv, or on the battlefield. Or maybe all three. And so for now, the war continues. This episode of How It Happened, Putin's Invasion, was produced by Naomi Shaven. Julia Redpath is our executive producer. Allison Snyder is our editor. Sarah Kehulani-Gu is our editor-in-chief. Music supervision by Alex Sugiura. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Ben O'Brien. Original music by Michael Honf. A special thanks to Barack Ravid and our Axios Today colleagues, and to Axios co-founders Jim Vandehei, Mike Allen, and Roy Schwartz. I also want to thank our colleagues outside of the newsroom who worked with us to make this season possible, especially Lucia Orejarena. 
I'm Dave Lawler. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening.